Now, Acts Reenacted continues today. And this is our 14th installment. This is the longest series we've done so far together. And uh, we're starting to hit our stride. It's all starting to come together and make sense, hopefully. Uh, last week, we looked over Acts 10 and some of chapter 11. And we looked at the way the Gentile missionary focus got started with the conversion of a Roman centurion named Cornelius. And in the wake of his dramatic conversion, we then looked at the response of the church who were now required to shift their thinking. Uh, they, they were primarily a Jewish Christ-following faith. That was where they were kind of at. That was the mindset of the church. And now they had to grapple with becoming a worldwide Christ-following faith. Uh, it took some time to work with this, and they had to discuss it a fair bit. But the church finally began to come around to the idea of outsiders with no links to God or Judaism at all now coming to faith in Christ. Now, with the theme of Gentile ministry now underway, the author of Acts continues by looking at the establishment of a church in a city called Antioch. And we're going to continue that story now. So we'll pick up where we left off last week and pick up chapter 11, verses 19 on. It's a bit shorter this week. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, uh, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to uh, Antioch. When he arrived and saw that the grace, what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas sent to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. And this happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the believers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So Luke's account picks up again from the story of Stephen's death and the great scattering that had occurred as a result. Uh, we talked about that a few weeks ago, and we learned that you know, the, there, was a, there was the Hebraic Jews and the, and the Hellenistic Jews, and the, the Hebraics could kind of hide in Jerusalem because they understood the language and the culture and could, could, uh, were much better assimilated to Jerusalem, and therefore the apostles and, and these people were able to stay there. But the Hellenized guys, the Greek-speaking Jews and these lot, had to get out of town because they stood out like a sore thumb. And uh, Stephen stood out heaps and he'd got, he, uh, he was killed very publicly, but the others had to get out of there. You know, it was these scattered Christians that Saul was pursuing when he was confronted on the Damascus Road. As we come into chapter 11, we are now about 12 years into that scattering incident. This means 12 years of vibrant Christians spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ and having significant success. The account shows us that Gentile territory is certainly being outreached. Uh, and Luke mentions the island of Cyprus here, as, as well as Phoenicia. I've never got that pronunciation right, and that's actually modern-day Lebanon. And, uh, but the focus of the portion of today is Antioch. Now, Antioch was founded in 300 BC by, by uh, Seleucus Nicator, who named it after his father. His father was Antiochus, who was a general in Alexander the Great's army. 
It served as the capital city of Syria, and this had long been part of the Greek kingdom. By the time the church came rolling in, it had become an amazing city. It had great architecture and a famous paved boulevard that ran direct north to south, and it was adorned with fountains and all these other standout features. It was made a free city in 64 BC when it was incorporated into the Roman Empire. The population was estimated at about half a million people in the first century. Rome at the time was believed to be about a million. And although it was primarily Greek-speaking in its community, it attracted people from all walks of life, including Persians, Indians and Orientals. Many Chinese and people from that area would actually live in Antioch or spend a lot of time there. The Jews had a sizable presence there as well because early in the peace they were offered equal citizenship. The ancient historian in the first century, Josephus, called this place the third city of the empire, with only Rome and Alexandria outshining Antioch's splendour. Because it was hugely cosmopolitan, Antioch was not controlled by any single religious group, including the Jews. And because of the trade, the travel and the wide range of ethnic presence, as well as the new divinely granted permission to take the gospel to the Gentiles, this became a strategically perfect city to establish a second apostolic church center. And it appeared to be happening whether the church in Jerusalem liked it or not. As we go into verse 20, we, read that, we begin to read of some unnamed daring young disciples who began to change their evangelistic approach. You know, they, they might have even been inspired by what they'd heard down the traps about Peter and what had occurred in Caesarea. Some young, some young Cyprians, people from Cyprus, and North African Cyrenes have decided to try their hand at evangelizing people outside the synagogues and other Jewish hotspots. I don't know, where they bought bagels and coffee or something. I don't know. Some people get that. That's a New York joke. And lo and behold, God is extending his favor to them. The use of the word Greeks here is a definite Gentile reference. Up to this point, Luke has been pretty clear in his distinction, using the word Hellenists to describe the Greek-speaking Jews, but is now calling this new audience Greek. Culturally and linguistically, these are everyday citizens of Antioch, who were likely aware but not associated with Judaism. And it is believed by most scholars that Luke himself was actually one of these numbers of people that are being spoken about here. When the church in Jerusalem hears about these goings-on, they send an interesting guy to Antioch to help them, and it shows their diligence in a number of ways. It shows that they are ensuring their claims of conversion were legitimate. But it also shows that their heart for Gentile mission is becoming warmer. The men they send is not one of the twelve apostles, but none other than a son of encouragement, Barnabas. It will be expected that you know, the church in Antioch was breaking new ground and seeing new success, and it was expected that they would need elementary teaching you know, to actually help them. But more so, they would need encouragement and they would need endorsement as a church. The guy with the best track record of doing all that thus far was the Cyprus-born disciple, Barnabas. He's, considered by, he's even considered by scholars, in fact, to be a Hebraic Jewish Christian. Now, you've got to catch this. All the Hellenists had to scatter. And if he didn't have to scatter, that's one way to conclude that. But second, they actually just believed that, uh, you know, that he was actually committed to the Hebrew Jewish commission, uh, expression. And, uh, and he was not able to reside. You know. But um, you know, like Samaria, the Hebraics were sent out to legitimize what they saw among the Hellenistic world. 
But Barnabas was also the right guy because he spoke the right language for the region. And he hailed from the same location as some of these evangelists had come from. He was the right man for the job because he could build the right type of relational bridge between Jerusalem and Antioch. And uh, you know what? We have a great little Jerusalem happening here, but if Antioch is occurring, you know, if Gentiles are coming to Christ, we need to be able to build bridges between that. We need to learn their language, but also stick to our roots. And uh, that's a, a big lesson in itself. As he enters Antioch, he's greeted by an effective multicultural group of believers. He's seeing God's hand all over the place. He's seeing more and more people of all ethnicities coming to Christ and even responding freely to his own preaching as well. He's so blown away by what he sees that he decides to plant himself there and commit to building and encouraging this local assembly. His aim is clear here too. He basically says this, he'll teach these new believers in Antioch to remain true with all their hearts. That's the approach he's taking with what he's teaching these these new Gentile disciples. In other words, take this belief you have and elevate it amongst all the other belief systems that are around you and let it become firm conviction. That's what he's teaching these guys to do. But of course, with the growth that occurred, it became apparent that a solid 2IC was needed. The church in Jerusalem still had at least 11 apostles, and I'll explain that bit next week, plus deacons. Barnabas was seeing the potential of this new church plant, and the growth demanded that he go get himself a bit of help. But not just anyone. This role called for a person who had the wits, the courage, the spirit, and the right God-placed calling to sympathize with both Jews and Gentiles in the church. The apostles in Jerusalem could not even contemplate that concept because it hadn't been done up to this point very much. Fortunately, Barnabas knew a guy who was currently living around these parts that was the ideal candidate. He was the one who recognized that from the start, and he knew he could have a good running mate if he could locate where this guy was again. Saul left the shore of Joppa seven or eight years prior to this, bound for his hometown of Tarsus. And while it's not entirely certain what he got up to at that time, it is clear that the Jerusalem church would have been keeping some tabs on on his work and where he was, what he was doing. There are also passages amongst his letters that don't seem to marry up with what we read in Acts. And and many scholars attribute these to the seven or eight silent years that that we don't read about here. In Galatians 1, he spoke of leaving Jerusalem but continuing to preach in Syria and his home state of Cilicia where uh, Tarsus was located. He wasn't sitting on on his faith doing nothing over that seven-year period. Some of the things he lists in 2 Corinthians 11 don't appear in Acts, namely the five doses of 39 lashes. Some of those aren't always accounted for. The comments of losing all things that he speaks of in Philippians 3.8 is believed to refer to a time when he was disowned by his family over his faith. He was a born free Roman citizen and he was an incredibly gifted scholar. And there's every chance that his family would have been quite well off and he would have had a lot to lose. Some scholars even point to his vision of the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12 as something that he experienced in his formative faith years and that as part of his intense spirit-led preparation for this huge ministry journey ahead. Saul had been waiting for the time where he would be called up to the plate. He knew his heavenly coach would call him off the bench at the right time. And as Antioch arises and the church is doing great things, that time is now here. Barnabas calls on him and then they go back to Antioch for a 12-month dream run of successful evangelism and church growth and discipleship. 
This dynamic duo was so good at what they did in that time that the church began to literally get a name for itself. You know how effective your church is by the names the community give you. Have we noticed that? (laughs) The cultured church of Antioch had a bit of a thing going on that they actually prided themselves on. They like to invent words and nicknames for events and people groups. And the nickname that was given to the church gave the church a very distinct position in the world scene. Up to this point, as we've been reading, we see throughout Acts, in chapter 6, they were known as disciples. In chapter 9, they were saints. In chapter 1, they were brothers. In chapter 10, they were believers. And in chapter 5, they were the called out ones, or the church, the ecclesia. And in chapter 9, 9 verse 2, they were considered by outsiders like Saul and the Sanhedrin, the people of the way. But in Antioch, after more than a year of believers assembling and doing amazing things in their midst and speaking with only one name on their lips, the locals began to nickname them Christianoi. In their vocabulary already, there were words like Herodianoi which meant Herodians or Herod people. And there was Kaiserianoi, Caesar people. But then amongst all those, this new community group was named and and christened by the community. Christianoi, Christ people. Even in mockery, as some suggest, the people around them in Antioch could not deny the Christ-centered nature of this group of people. They were clearly associated with Jesus Christ, So much so that their personal identity was lost and they were enveloped in who they were as Christ followers instead. History records that the world saw them that way from that time on. Josephus in the first century called them that. Tacitus in the second century. Peter himself 20 years later in his own letters used the word Christians. It became the actual catch cry of what the people of Jesus were all about. But there's a challenge with that. Problems just might arise when you identify as a Christian. The church in Antioch, but more notably Jerusalem, faced a few with this new identification. They had a few challenges ahead. Up until now, within the realm of the Roman Empire, the believers were able to hide under the radar as a sect of Judaism. This meant that they remained a legally recognized religion in the, in the sphere of the Roman Empire. The line in the sand was being drawn now, and with Gentiles joining in, gro- in droves, there was no way they could stay hidden under that old system anymore. But they would not be quickly recognized in their own right because they wouldn't play the politically correct card of giving Caesar his due as a deity. In other... Their other challenge was that by naming themselves this way in a Gentile country, how were they going to remain true to their Jewish heritage and the key role of the Old Testament law in their faith? In Jerusalem, that link seemed natural enough. But the Gentiles had no clue. This was not going to be easy to reconcile, and we'll see in future weeks some of the flawed and fabulous ways that they tried to address the many issues that came up. But what about us? What does such a deliberate, a decisive identification with Jesus Christ mean for us? What does it mean to you? 
will that come at a cost? Will it come with some difficulty at all? Will there be lines in the sand you have to draw? Will there be times where you're going to have to dig deep to explain the faith you have? Any Christian with years of experience will tell you that the answer to all those questions is an emphatic yes. Are we ready for that? If you're ready to identify with Christ, those are the things we need to be ready with. The Church of Antioch answered that question of readiness with their very next actions, and we pick up that story as we go. Where they and many other Gentile churches in the years to come decided to go ahead and show just how authentic their newfound faith was. In verse 27, it becomes clear from the Lord that trouble was coming. But it was good because they as the church in Antioch could be part of the solution. We read that out of the church in Jerusalem, some recognized prophets visit Antioch and it's there that the Lord reveals a famine is on the near horizon for the region. And Luke adds that it came to pass during the reign of Emperor Claudius. So we're talking about a 13-year period from 41 to 54 AD. History records that in that time, and particularly in the Palestine region, that there was a succession of bad harvests and famine conditions which hurt entire populations. Judea was badly hit by these famines and the church in Jerusalem, after being hurt and hit by persecution, was now being decimated by famine as well. In fact, one record, recording from Josephus says that Judeans, many Judeans died during that time from lack of food. But the church of Antioch, both Jew and, Gen- and Greek and Gentile, felt the brotherly bond towards them and they got proactive. And they did so with their wallets and their possessions which was the identical way the church in Jerusalem behaved when they were first saved. When they were first formed, that was a hallmark of the, that was an early hallmark of the Jerusalem church. In 2 Corinthians, we read that later on, at the urging of Paul, the wealthier Greek churches of Archaea and Macedonia also got in on the act as well because they felt that they owed it to Jerusalem to serve them the way they had once been served. Couldn't say that about the Greek economy today, I think. Eventually, Saul and Barnabas were able to go together to Jerusalem with their Antioch gift firmly in their hand. Saul, the one who 13 years earlier had brought hurt to the Jerusalem church, was now coming full circle by bringing relief to that same body of believers. This, this was an amazing picture right here. This passage shows us a great picture of the unity and brotherhood that emerges when the church operates with purity and authenticity. The church was given a nickname, Christian. And they in turn lived up to what the public expected of them in identifying with Christ and in behaving Christ-like. In 1 John 3.17, we read this passage that a pastor of a Gentile church wrote. John wrote this in Ephesus. If any one of you has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in you? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. The church of Jerusalem opened their hearts to the Gentiles because it was clear that God wanted that dynamic to be in play. And we see here clearly that their openness bore fruit. The Gentiles recognized the origins of their faith and they became contributors back into the church that gave so much to them. 
The end result was a Gentile-based church who had no or little links with the God of Israel, becoming every bit as godly and Christ-like as the Jerusalem church. There was unity and there was fidelity in the discipleship process. And there was a clear sense of brotherhood between the two massive apostolic centers. I'm going to come to an end now and and, and look at a couple of challenges here. One short challenge and then one that gave me a bit of thinking as we went along. The first one is this. Be prepared for 2013. Be prepared for today's pagan Gentile to be tomorrow's brother in the faith. This took some effort in Jerusalem. And it will take some in us too. But I believe this is going to be something we will have the opportunity to put into practice much more so coming into the new year. Second challenge comes from this, uh, and and I'll, I'll start with this Time Magazine article, October 22, 1951. And it opened with this line. The question before the court in Iowa's Black Hawk County Courthouse last week was, was, a tough to, was a tough one to answer. What is a Christian? On that answer depended $75,000. It had never occurred to ophthalmologist William B. Small of Waterloo, Iowa, a prominent Methodist layman, that the answer might be so difficult. When he died in 1939, his will directed that the income from $75,000 of his estate should be distributed to persons who believe in the fundamental principles of the Christian religion and in the Bible and who are endeavoring to promulgate same. That's the exact wording of his will. His wife died in 1949 and the will became public after this time. And a, a dispute grew over exactly who in town were the Christians the doctor described and therefore worthy of the share of the money. Lawsuits were filed and there were countersuits as well. But eventually the court was given the responsibility of settling that issue. Each of the ministers in town who had staked the claim was called in to appear before the judge to be interviewed in order to see if they were in agreement when it came to exactly what Christianity's fundamental principles were. Now, what I hate about the Time Magazine website is that I don't subscribe, so that's all I know. I have no clue about the outcome. But it doesn't matter either. I think the headline is actually more poignant right now for us than the courtroom drama. What is a Christian? In Antioch, the public made up their mind and called what they saw Christian it then became the church's responsibility to hold up their end of the bargain. The public saw good things. They saw barriers broken down where people groups who hated each other in the world scene could love each other in the church walls. They saw God's presence and hand on the things the church was doing. If there's no power, there's no proof. They saw believers who were doing all they could to grow in their belief system. And they always had an open door for anyone to come and join them. They saw people clearly identified with Jesus Christ and people dedicated to displaying that with true, generous authenticity and in complete 
unity. The mocking term of the world for the things they stood for became a badge of honor for the church to wear. We are Christ's people. What is a Christian? Someone who lives in such a way that all those observing see is Jesus. And that is a huge challenge before us today.